0: And I'm ready, so come on baby. Hey
1: Nasty Women, I'm Kate Harding. And I'm Samita Mukhopadhyay, and this is Feminasty. This week we're going
0: to talk to writer and activist Saraya Chamali, who is working on a book we cannot wait to get our grubby paws on. It is about women's anger, and from this discussion we cannot like deal with how long it's going to take before this book actually comes out. But it's going to be so worth it when it gets here. And in the meantime, you can listen to Soraya say all sorts of brilliant things, many of which kind of blew my mind. And uh, and believe me, anger is something I have thought quite a bit about. Other top of the show news is that this is our last show for a while. This is episode 12. We can't believe that we did that many in the first place. We can't believe we did this podcast at all. But now it's time for us to go on hiatus and work on our own writing and activism. So we are going to miss you all so much. We appreciate you listening like you would not even believe. And we certainly hope to see you again pretty soon. Without further ado, let's talk to Soraya. Today's guest is Soraya Shimali, who is uh, a terrific Writer and thinker that uh, we have adored for a long time. She's a writer and activist whose work focuses on the role of gender in culture, politics, religion, and media. She's director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project and organizer of the Safety and Free Speech Coalition, both of which are involved in curbing online abuse, media and tech diversity, and expanding women's freedom of expression. Oh, sorry, I. I read that wrong. It's not involved in curbing media and tech diversity, but encouraging those. That's right. I
2: think actually it's a (laughs) typo on
0: their website. All right. But um so so these you deal in the tech world and you look at everything Mm -hmm. through a gender lens, which is marvelous. And uh you're also working on a book about women's anger as a political force right now,
2: which I am dying to read. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that, Saraya? Uh, sh- yes, of course. Um, well, first, thank you so much for having me today. I'm just oh. delighted to talk to both of you um, and a longtime fan of, of your work. Uh, the book that I'm writing about covers the topic of uh, the relationship of women and this, this emotion of anger. And that is in the sense that it, both the personal experience of anger and the social construction and response of anger. So I'm I'm looking at the way anger is expressed and perceived in everything from the context of intimate relationships and families to public representations and politics.
1: That's wow. awesome. I also cannot wait to read that. And as someone who has been angry for a very long time um, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and kind of thinking about the role that anger plays, and one thing I've been thinking about a lot, I think you know, and I'd love for you to speak to this, is, is do you think women are admonished when they're angry or perceived as angry? And... What do you see as the kind of positive force of anger? Because I think that there is, you know, we're always told like, you know, and like we, ha- we go to therapy to like grapple mm-hmm. with our anger. But I think there's like a larger benefit
2: to anger. Mm-hmm. Could you
1: speak to either of that?
2: Sure. Um, yes. I don't think it's in our imaginations that we think there are penalties that accrue for our being angry. I mean, I have really immersed myself in this topic because I, like you, have been angry for a super long time. And I really love my anger. My anger has given me purpose and clarity. It's brought me to communities. It's very political. It's enhanced my relationships privately because it it enables you to be really intimate with your friends in a way that maybe you would be inhibited otherwise, right? And so I agree with you that this is a tremendous political, I mean, a tremendous positive force. The issue that we have is still overwhelmingly that our emotional culture, for lack of a, a better term, our emotional culture prohibits us from actually using this one emotion. So generally speaking, stereotypes about emotionality and gender um, lead, lead people to think that women are the more emotional people and the irrational people and the one who feel deeply, where we know that this is kind of bullshit, right? I mean, men feel things and they have irrationality, and they feel deeply and are repressed in their ability often to express that. But even though we are supposed to have all of these emotions, there is this one emotion that is regulated very specifically. And so anger is tied very closely to masculinity, even though it is an emotion, whereas the suppression of other emotions is required by masculinity. So we distribute this emotion very specifically, and I think politically.
0: Yes, thank you for getting there. That's what I was thinking the whole time. It's the it's the only emotion that men are allowed to feel, but it's the one that women are not allowed to feel and express. Um, it is a really seriously socialized and regulated emotion. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples of, I mean, obviously, like Me Too is a huge example of women's anger suddenly becoming this massive political force. And we will want to discuss that. Mm-hmm. But what are we've talked about that a lot already on the show. I'm curious about some other examples you might have of of women's anger really coming to the fore in recent years and and becoming a force to be reckoned with.
2: So, you know, I, I think it's um, interesting the way that women adapt to the prohibitions and and in the United States and this has been true for well over a century in terms of our politics the the prohibition comes from the fact that anger is considered masculine and and masculinity is tied to politics and so when we violate those gender norms we Are punished for doing that. So you can see that, for example, in the treatment of Hillary Clinton, who refused to shut up and go away for like decades, right? They, you know, it, it was all of the language of punishing her, throw her in jail, shoot her, hang her. I mean, it was just endless. What women do to buffer themselves from that. But use their anger is associate their anger with something that conforms to and confirms their gender role. So you will see over and over again that what women identify with politically is their maternity. So you have Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Moms Demand Gun Sense. There are literally dozens of organizations. Moms Rising, right? And that enables women to use this emotion in an explicitly political way while saying, but you know what, ultimately we're not threatening the structure of our society. We're not actually saying that our independence and agency and political thought takes priority over this role that we're assigned. We're saying that we're using it in the service of this role, which I find fascinating, right? I mean, oh, Yeah, that's so interesting.
0: So would you say then that, that anger represents power
2: and that's one of the reasons that we keep anger so strictly gender-policed? So it is the emotion of injustice and um, retribution, right? Anger is always about a sense that there's something wrong and its power or powerlessness comes from whether it has what's referred to as uptake. Whose anger has uptake? I mean, I think this question of anger and power or anger and powerlessness really comes out in this question of of uptake. Whose anger gains traction, right? And so a lot of women's anger is tied up in feelings of powerlessness. That's why women tend to cry a lot more than men. They, They cry because they feel this sort of immense rage but they don't feel that their anger will have uptake or make change, and it becomes kind of an echo chamber inside of them of frustration and, and anger and the expression of anger that isn't threatening. When a woman cries, she confirms a, a feeling of vulnerability, right? So it doesn't end up being a kind of externalized rage that threatens the idea that women have this feeling. And so I think you're spot on, though, because... We don't like to talk about power differentials in intimate relationships, even though they exist in terms of status and resources and the dynamics of anger. And we really don't want to talk about them in political terms, political power and anger and the way that we identify angry men with revolutionary acts, but angry women with lunacy, right? Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. i just does make me think of Michelle Obama, actually. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I'd love to hear what you're finding around lines of race, because mm-hmm. I do think that while anger can be gendered, black men and the kind of stereotype of like the angry black man or the Mm -hmm. angry black woman and how much Michelle Obama had to really step away from being perceived as angry in any way, shape or form because of like, even if she was photographed in one way or another, she would be called an angry black woman everywhere. Um, So how where do you think race kind of plays into this?
2: So this is, this is, I think such an important point because we think, in terms of, we've been talking in terms of anger and gender. It would be just as appropriate, though, to talk about anger and status, any form of status or inequality. So anger is always prohibited to the people with lower status. So that may be black people. It may be women. It might be a caste in a different country. It might, you know, you, you can configure this in any number of ways. When Michelle Obama became first lady, there's some fascinating studies about the way her representation as an angry black woman was not only the stereotype of an angry black woman but also a kind of shifting from the idea that the president was angry to his being manipulated by an angry woman so both raced and gendered and this really was shocking to her i mean she has talked about the fact that she was really taken aback. I mean, this is a brilliant woman who is aware of these stereotypes, but even so, she was taken aback at the power of this stereotype, and it's used to try and silence, because we know that, that that's what happens, right? And and we see that in kindergarten. We know that the policing and regulation of black women's speech by sort of throwing this at them, just dismissing them with this term, you're an angry black woman, happens starting in School, You know, young black girls who are assertive and who act in sort of verbally disruptive ways, the way, for example, a young white woman, a young white boy would are overly disciplined and penalized for breaking not just codes of gender, but also race. And I think that that was very clear in the descriptions of uh, Michelle Obama. And as you say, she was very conscious about having to navigate that.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, almost going back to the point about the powerful angry people are, you know, given credit for revolutions, whereas the lower status angry people are just seen as, I forget what you said at this point. Lunatics. Lunatics, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, lunatics, and also what I was thinking in terms of the way that people talk about Michelle Obama, the way that people talk about angry black women so often, and mm-hmm. even just about feminists in general, is immediately you're described as militant, yes. even if you have you know the most moderate kind of version of, of feminism or liberalism, that if you express any anger at all, you are immediately put into these terms where you are, A, incapable of thinking of nuance, and B physically threatening as if you might actually be trying to start a revolution Uh, as
1: opposed to you know most angry black women quote unquote who are militant um, that use the vote versus angry white men that actually takes them out automatic weapons and um, yes. like military grade weapons uh, so I, I do think and this is just not necessarily to play devil's advocate but I do think that there has been a conversation about white men and anger oh, and yes. you know these like <laughs> lonely white men that that and they never get the same kind of like stereotypical behavior but I do, I do think that people are starting <laughs> to be like oh wait <laughs> like, this <laughs> anger is really toxic and really bad.
2: Right.
0: Right. Well, even the fact that the white men are never called terrorists for doing that, too. Yeah. Um, that we just completely conceive of their anger in a very different way
2: and always want to legitimate it. That's right. And and to delegitimize women's anger. I mean, the, the thing that's really struck me, too, in, in thinking about all of this is the way as girls – and this is almost universally true. It really doesn't – I mean, countries differ in their anger – socialization. So for example, um, women in Germany Germany have far less inhibitions about expressing anger than American women. There are some fascinating studies about that. American women will bite their tongues. They'll, you know, subsume what they have to say and politeness and passive aggression. And German women are like, what are you doing? (laughs) you know but
0: and then we get stereotypes of german women as harsh absolutely right harsh and
2: brash and cold and not nurturing and all of this stuff but Mm -hmm. what is really amazing to me is how strong the socialization is that by the time we are teenagers we are really taught to police other girls and women's anger to shut it down to mock it to use it as a tool against them and that's just really effective you know if 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 you are constantly policing yourself if you're constantly policing other women then that work is being done and no one has to do it you know yeah how do you how do you think that this plays into like
0: bullying because i remember being told all the time when i was a teenager and i was being bullied or a young teenager in middle school up through you know writing on the internet that Just don't let them see that it gets to you, that you're giving them what you want if you have a reaction to it. When, you know, my natural anger, people just constantly told me to put that down as if by expressing that, the bullies would be winning.
2: You know, that's interesting. Uh, I, you know, a lot of the work that's been done by people like Rachel Simmons and Lynn Michael Brown, looking at adolescence and aggression and, and girls, it demonstrates how differently anger is taught to girls in in different cultures in the United States. So for example, black girls learn much more explicitly about how to think and use their anger because they have to as a matter of survival, right? They just it, it's mm-hmm. very necessary lesson. Girls who grow up in lower income families similarly have a different regulatory mechanism in their socialization about how to express themselves so they're often called crass and crude and and all these other words that associate their anger with vulgarity right and mm-hmm. and so when we are talking about this imposition of this idea that you should stay calm and not show how you feel about this feeling and don't give them the the satisfaction i really think mm-hmm. that's a double edged sword and actually just today, just before we got on this call, we were talking about Selma Hayek's letter, uh, her, yes. her article about Harvey Weinstein. And two things were really striking to me about this. One was that she refers to his rage multiple times mm-hmm. a- and doesn't ever refer to her own. I don't know one woman who has experienced anything like this who hasn't felt deep and abiding anger, right? And so yeah. I, th- I think that it was... Notable that she, I thought, projected her rage onto him. No doubt he had rage, but for her never to refer to her own rage was striking to me. And then secondly, it was doubly striking because there was an incident early in the year with Jessica Williams, I think maybe it was at Sundance, where she essentially said, hey, let's not get all caught up in anger. Do do you Mm -hmm. remember that? Did you see that? Yeah. 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 And that is, yeah. I think, a typical policing, you know, like, no, we don't want to be associated with that terrible emotion. Right. Well, I mean, with sama Hayek, I-, I think we have to acknowledge,
0: too, that one of the big stereotypes of Latinas is that they're fiery, yeah. that they have a temper, that they'll go off. Um, that's right. Again, code, coding that as as lunatic behavior in, instead of a legitimate reaction to injustice. Right. So I wonder if that's something you know that she has had to learn and and be conscious of not coming off that way so that she can be heard. Right.
2: And I think absolutely. And I sort of laughed because I'm part Lebanese and I grew up in the Bahamas and you know with a very strict sort of Catholic environment. And I look at her and I'm like, I absolutely know where that's coming from, right? Like, I know Mm -hmm. all of those prohibitions. And so, yes, I think you add to that this stereotype of the sort of deranged Latina woman. And I'm sure she, in the public eye, has to have, I mean, you can just imagine how careful she's had to be about that all the time, you know? And that makes me think of Uma Thurman. I mean, when- Mm, yeah. You know, Uma Thurman's body language, every muscle in her face, everything, I mean, the setting of her shoulders, you just, it just oozed rage. Right. But she was very much, as we all learned to be, in control of that. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Um. It's interesting. I've been watching uh, The Crown lately,
2: too.
0: And and not that, you know, it is hard to have too much sympathy for the British royal family. (laughs) (laughs) But it is sort of amazing just watching how much Claire Foy just has to act with her face and the like rage that she is constantly suppressing mm-hmm. as playing the queen. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just sort of a very extreme version of, of what we all learn to some extent, I think. Yeah,
2: I think some of the best memes I've ever seen are memes of women's faces managing anger <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes, Like yeah. really, because we all know what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, right. And and that it becomes a threat, to, you know, it, it becomes dangerous for you to express that anger sometimes. Yeah. I, well, I laugh because especially with, frankly, women like us, I kind of joke that, uh, I think I just put this in the book actually, that all I have to do to be considered angry and aggressive is walk into a room. Mm. You know? Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. your anger precedes you. Yeah.
1: Or I used to joke like, you know, I'd just be like, "I'm not angry. My face just permanently looks like this." <laughs> like I've just, I've been angry for so long. It's just not even anger anymore. It's just who you know, I am. The
0: whole rusting bit. Yeah, race, right? yeah. That, like we literally can't even let our faces relax yeah. without being perceived as yeah. angry.
2: Yeah. Oh my god! I found an article. One of those WikiHow articles. I, I don't oh know. God. I don't know who writes them, but this one was literally how to cry while looking pretty. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? And I had gotten to it because I was really focusing on this, for lack of a better term, a crying gap. Like, what is it? Like, Uh everybody cries. Boys are taught they just simply can't. It's just too much of a feminization. Mm -hmm. And women are taught to do it because it is less threatening in the environment in which they might feel rage. And this was literally saying... And oh, by the way, make sure you are as attractive as possible when you do it.
0: Unbelievable! Oh my yeah, god. it was
2: unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, and yet totally freaking believable. Yeah.
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, you know.
1: Yeah, that's oh great god, and that's like such a way that men diminish women. Like you know, if, if your boyfriend is like, "Oh, you look so pretty when
2: you cry," or you know, you're just like, oh, "I'm gonna no rip idea. your head off!" Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, it's true. And yeah, and you think about the way people sort of embrace the ugly cry. Yeah. Like that really made like the ugly yeah. cry. And you think the ugly cry. What the hell?
0: Yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like it's the opposite of that. The pretty
2: cry. The it's pretty cry. Yeah.
0: And yet we do. I was about to be, is it like the ugly sneeze or something? But of course we have that. And I've seen women who totally like sneeze like mice and just do everything they can to make sure the sneeze comes out. It's like, choo. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
2: it's so funny right
0: (laughs) so if we're doing that about sneezing then of course we're thinking about ugly crying versus pretty crying which
2: is just yeah right but if you know if you think about just you you get the prohibitions on anger but they're built on prohibitions on speech and all kinds of expression
0: on on emotion on basically uh, and and it all comes back to a prohibition on our own agency essentially Because, again, it's like if you are not, I I think that was such an important insight and so well said that anger is the emotion of injustice. And that's, you know, that's what it all comes back to is, you know, these prohibitions are in part on making sure that we don't recognize that we all are oppressed for the simple fact of our womanhood, regardless of any other sites of oppression. Mm-hmm. A- and and in fact, we teach people to mock that. And I think it goes back to what you were saying, Soraya, maybe about how we mock girls' anger and then that becomes mocking women's anger and, you know, oh, you're so cute when you're mad and that sort of thing. Right. That, like, women are so ridiculed for saying, hey, this seems like injustice, that they eventually stop saying it and they eventually join the people doing the ridiculing. And so you know the kind of women who vote for Roy Moore are like oh well i'll just make fun of feminists and i'll just say right. that you know they're they're crazy they're militant they're all of the things we already talked about
2: well and they're all baby killers oh of
0: course yeah i mean that's yeah yeah that yeah, we're literally you know? baby killers <laughs> that's how they sell it in part
2: right yeah you know the um the this situation which i find endlessly sort of simultaneously repugnant and fascinating, is that we have playing out in front of us the deep history of the mutual construction of racism and, class, and, and sexism in America, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, every day we see that working in our political lives. And what's so striking to me about these white women voters is that they are conservatives, but they're not actually conservatives. They're authoritarians. Mm, good right point, and yes. and we keep saying conservatives when what we mean is authoritarians mm-hmm. so not all conservatives are authoritarian but all authoritarians are conservative and those conservative those authoritarian principles which again are deeply based on punishing rule breakers right yes women women who have sex are rule breakers women who abort are rule breakers you know there they're all of these ideas about our proper place in hierarchies, et cetera, that go into this. But the most fundamental unit of creating hierarchy and establishing difference and treating people with disgust and contempt is the gender binary in intimate relationships and families. Mm -hmm. And what they've found in all of these analyses of Trump voters is not that, of course, it wasn't economic distress that caused this... Mm -hmm voting pattern. It wasn't even white male anger, which a lot of people talked about. They found that the number one predictor of whether someone voted for Trump or not was their attitude towards spanking. Oh my God. In childhood. Mm -hmm. So if a person grew up in a household where uh, there was rigid moral standards backed up by physical punishment, the chances are exponentially more likely that they will be authoritarian and they will displace this rage that they had in childhood into political activism that is based very much on feelings of othering groups of people, establishing hierarchies, and displaying disgust, which is just amazing, right? Because you think to yourself, what are these women doing? Like, how is it that they can vote this way? And they can't really reconcile their sense of being good people in a just world with the evidence that this is not happened. This is not the case. Right.
0: Well, and they just, I mean, in terms of the authoritarian mindset, of course, the comfort of that too is, is feeling like, okay, well, if I know my place and I keep to it and I follow the rules, then I will be safe. And that's exactly right. and, And that's what And of course, though, when you get into an abusive situation, either interpersonally or federally in this case, then you have something where people are like, people think, you know, the rules keep changing. And so now what is my place and how do I do it? And so is there something there where then they just kind of like double down on how they police other people instead of letting those insights come
2: in? yeah all of these um there are lots of studies on what's called systems justification, which is this orientation towards the just world and defending the status quo and If you think about, for example mm-hmm. what happened around the Trump tape that was released, the access Hollywood tape two weeks before the election last year, mm-hmm. half of the half of the women in the country were appalled and disgusted and horrified and just couldn't believe that this man could be elected the other half, what I would say could be well categorized as um, a more authoritarian, conservative, just world group of people, doubled down. And that's well studied, this instinct to deny, so denialism in general, whether that's denialism of climate change, environmental toxicity, women's rights to, you know, reproductive justice, whatever the form of denial is doesn't really matter, but denialism is this powerful, protection against identity threat. And so in an instance like the Trump tape, women who believe in this kind of benevolently sexist, patriarchal protection world, double down. They dug in. And the only way you can do that is to say these women are lying. There's really no alternative,
1: Yeah, Yeah.
2: And so actually their anger gets deflected away from a man like Trump and on to people like us who say, but look, look at this, like you cannot deny what, the, what is happening here. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: What do you think is the role of religion in policing women's anger and especially affecting them politically? I'm obsessed with that topic, by the way. Fantastic.
2: (laughs) Like, really obsessed by it. Um, I think religion plays a huge role in the policing of women's anger Uh, on many levels. The the first level is in the institutionalization of a gender binary that locates our dignity in caring for others and prioritizing their needs. And so even the articulation of an injustice against us as individuals becomes secondary. It becomes tangential to what we're really supposed to be worried about, which is other people. And so if you think again about the election, Hillary Clinton rarely, rarely demonstrated anger in an election in which her male opponents could leverage anger very effectively. At the same time, though, Elizabeth Warren was like her anger channeler. She would get on Twitter and say everything she could. And that was kind of acceptable because actually Elizabeth Warren wasn't speaking on her own behalf, right? She was doing it on behalf of somebody else or other people. Um, so there is a, what I, what I call the care mandate, the fact that women are supposed to care and care and care and never prioritize their own needs. And that's deeply religious. The second thing is um, that the prohibition on our expression of unhappiness or frustration or a sense that there's something wrong can't really be separated from the prohibition on our public expression at all, which happens in all of these religious institutions. So like I grew up Catholic. I knew as a girl that when I walked into a Catholic church, there was a place for boys and men to speak that I was not welcome and that you know the fact that that every girl and woman in traditional patriarchal faith has to have her relationship with the divine mediated by men's speech, mm-hmm. and and in the in the texts related to these religions, anger really is um, reserved for this image of a of a vengeful god of a of the justifiable rage of usually a man with power. There just aren't a lot of angry women who accomplish much and that aren't punished for it in religious texts. And so I think that you have the combination of the the caring mandate, the prohibitions on speech, the prioritization of other people, and and also norms around modesty and forgiveness. You know, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to set aside your negative feelings and forgive people because that's what God wants. And, you know, we shouldn't be forgiving anybody until we're good and ready to forgive them. Um, But people who are religious are often told that is the primary response to their distress, which, of course, minimizes their distress. Mm -hmm. And modesty is, I think, tied to that idea that we shouldn't center ourselves in our own lives. So we could do this all day. And it's it's such a cornerstone
0: of so many kinds of Christianity. But it's it just it it kills me where I'm I don't know. I'm a grudge holder. Samita, you had a a great question.
1: Yes. So Soraya, what 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 do you think and I'm happy to answer or think about this too. What is the opposite what is the opposite emotion to anger?
2: So so that's interesting. I didn't think emotion. I thought stasis. Mm -hmm. I think of stasis as the opposite of anger. I don't think there's an opposite I got to think about an opposite emotion because I actually went through an exercise of trying to think of all the positive attributes of anger. So anger is compassion, anger as empathy, all of these things that we don't typically associate with anger, even though truly and deeply so many of us experience anger in that way, right? I mean, we become angry not only on our own behalf, but on behalf of people that we have deep empathy for. And so I think of passivity and almost a paralyzation like Mm -hmm. just an emptiness what do you think
1: I mean while you were talking about it I was thinking for me I think the opposite because anger is a function of injustice and so the opposite of anger is justice or or like it's on the path to joy so what you know people that are plagued with anger often are denied is the ability to express or have joy in their life because they are grappling with oppression. And yeah, and obviously you are able to find joy. And and I do think religion does play a role in making that space sometimes to, to find or, or give yourself an excuse for joy. But Mm -hmm. you know, that I do think of, you know, when I think of my own process with anger, the opposite for me is joy, I think.
2: The opposite of anger. Yeah, I think,
0: I'm interested in in kind of both of your answers where, uh, and and I'm very compelled by the idea that the opposite of anger is submission, essentially, but then maybe Mm -hmm. the way that you kind of synthesize those is in terms of trying to handle anger in a productive way, because it can be this amazing energy and animating force, but it can also become corrosive insofar as it is you know it's that reaction to injustice and when it dips into that feeling of powerlessness it can kind of tip over into despair right and so i think that's where samita Mm -hmm. is talking about you need to find a way back to the joy right and and so i don't know is maybe the opposite of it hope or or is it even right to talk about it in terms of
2: opposites or should we be thinking more in terms of what complements it yeah It's a very interesting question. Do you know the philosopher Martha Nussbaum? Mm -hmm. She wrote a book recently called Anger and Forgiveness, Mm -hmm. and she makes a distinction that I think is important. I think it's difficult to make in the moment of anger or, frankly, in day-to-day life, but she makes a distinction between anger that is based on status, so anger in which the expression of the anger or the resolution of the anger is based in violence or vengeance and literally reducing someone else's standing in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So we see the cluster of emotions that is contempt and anger and disgust all together all the time. We just saw it in spades, right, in the last year. Mm-hmm. But she makes a distinction between that, which she thinks is uniformly bad and awful and not productive and despairing and all of those negative attributes. And anger that is what she calls transitive and is based on looking for social good. So it's future facing and um, it's more closely aligned to notions of increasing human dignity overall on a path to justice. And I like that distinction at at first I thought, no, you know what, I'm really uncomfortable with this idea that we're just going to say anger is negative because I just don't believe that. Um, I, I believe that anger is pretty neutral. And depending on how we learn to use it, it can be negative, or it can be quite positive. Like I think all of the feelings of consumption, like being consumed by anger, which I have felt, or being filled with hopelessness because of powerlessness, those often come, I think, from misdirected or mismanaged anger? Like, what do you do with this this tremendous energy that's going into these bad feelings, right? And I think all of us are examples of taking that and turning it into something much more positive, which can happen consciously or unconsciously.
0: Yeah. Oh, God, this is so interesting. We could go on forever, but also we don't I want know. you to spoil your whole book here
2: because everyone should buy that when it comes out. Yeah. Um. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you got me thinking now about this right? opposite question. Well, there you go. <laughs> Samita makes you think, man. Little, little,
1: little, a little media prep, right. you know. Um,
0: so, Soraya, we have one yeah. more question that we ask everyone, and that is, what, yes. what makes you a nasty woman? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, my God. What makes me a nasty woman? Oh, my God. I've got to say that it's probably loud persistence. Yes. I just won't. I I just, you know, I'm one of those people who won't stop talking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We love that about you.
2: I know, you know. Like, it's got to be that quality of just persistence. I think we're all relentless, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and actually, yeah. I really am thinking hard about your notion of submission too. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just nasty women. Look you right in the eye. Damn it! That's right.
1: That's right. That's you right. You know. All right. I
2: think that's that's got to be my
0: answer. Yeah. All right. yeah. Well, that is a great answer. And thank you so yes. much for joining thank us. Thank you for this joining was such us. Such a good conversation. That was so
2: fun to talk to you. Thank <laughs> you too. It was really great to talk to you both.
1: Kate, hey, it's been a long year. We just had a great conversation with Saraya about anger, about angry women and being angry and having the right to feel angry. What in the middle of all of this is giving you hope right now?
0: Well, I mean, honestly, that conversation was so good that in many ways it does give me hope, where I think Saraya helped us reframe anger as, as a positive and hopeful force to some extent. But Since that sort of sounds like I'm punting, I would also say just the fact that we have pretty much gotten to the end of the year. I mean, knock wood, but we're almost there. And this time last year, I honestly, I just, I couldn't imagine what was going to happen or how we would survive a year in Trump's America. And lo and behold, we just about have.
1: We have. We have. And we haven't just survived. We've had a good year, actually. Yeah, uh, actually. In, in, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> both like with this podcast and having a really amazing book but also like I'm I feel really hopeful about how many people have engaged with what we have in our book and are really thinking about what country they want and what they stand for and the values that they stand for and that to me is exciting even if it's grim circumstances that it's happening within
0: Absolutely and and I think the Me Too movement too you know I know We've touched on this in practically every episode. It is astonishing to me that it continues a pace, that it's not slowing down, that you see these little like hints of backlash, but then everyone is like, no, no backlash. This is still happening. That's something I could never in a million years have predicted. And uh, no. and it really feels like we're talking about the kind of systemic change we need to see in a way that we just never have been able to break through to the mainstream before.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to feel hopeful. Kate, do you know what the word of the year is for Merriam-Webster, the most searched word this year?
0: I do, but tell me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's feminism. (laughs) That
0: is an amazing note to end on. Yeah, that absolutely gives me hope that feminism is the word of the year.
1: Yeah, that like all these people are now actually wondering what it means instead of believing our haters, which is that we're... Hairy lesbians, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with being a hairy lesbian. That's
0: right. <laughs> some of my best is there... friends, etc. Et
1: <laughs> <Yes. laughs> exactly. Some of my best friends. And, you know, and some of us are actually man haters, and that's okay too. That's but <laughs> feminism is also the movement that is bringing you Me Too. And it's also the movement that brought you the Inauguration Day protests. And it's also the movement that's helping women come forward with stories and with saying enough is enough. And and we can credit that to feminism. And it's
0: the movement that has infiltrated the media somewhat enough that we're we're getting more serious takes on this and not just, I don't think Me Too could have happened 10 years ago. Even no. if, if the rest of the circumstances have been right, I don't think there would be enough people who get Feminism 101 within the mainstream media to be able to mm-hmm. carry it out there the way it's been carried. So good job, feminism. Good job, feminists. Yay,
1: feminism. Yay, feminism.
0: All right. And sadly, we have come to the end of this run of Feminasty for at least a little while. These
1: were an amazing. 12 amazing episodes.
0: (laughs) I can't believe, you know, and when we started it, we thought maybe we'll do four, maybe we'll do six. We did 12. And uh, we need to regroup for a while before we decide if there's going to be more. But in the meantime, we just want to thank you so much for listening to this and to making it worth our for making it worth our while to do a podcast.
1: Yeah. If, yeah, it's I think we've both wanted to do a podcast for so long. And the ability like, I, I want to thank um, the team over at Macmillan for helping us Make this happen. They've been amazing. Absolutely,
0: Becky, Alyssa, Alex, Kelly. Thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We know we're like a nightmare.
0: <laughs> we are the worst to work
1: with. <laughs> we're the worst. We're the worst. But you know, okay. The thing that I'm doing now is instead of saying sorry, I thank people oh, you for you know waiting. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 that always drives me um, most, though. <laughs> like, when yeah. somebody says thank you for your patience or when I smoked thank I you for not smoking I was like it's not because I want to <laughs> <So>. yeah <laughs> So we'll let them say that to us, but thank you for making us look good anyway, team at McMillan Podcast. (laughs) Yes,
1: Yes, seriously, thank you. Um, And to all of our amazing guests, we had so many good guests on this run. I mean, it was really,
0: really cool to get to talk to a lot of those people, both friends and people we had never met before and just admired from afar. And when you have a podcast, sometimes people say, yes, I will come and talk to you. So that was great.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so if you haven't listened to them, please go download the full Series. It's 12 episodes talking about different parts of being nasty women and being resilient in the time of Trump. Now available for binging.
0: So, and also, if you haven't done it yet, you're going to want to check out our book which is Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. You can get more info on that at NastyWomenAnthology.com. And you should also check out other Macmillan podcasts. Uh, It's us.macmillan.com slash podcasts is where you can find a list of those. They will be available wherever you get your podcasts. And the people who have made this such a delightful listening experience and not just the, like, hot garbage, raw <laughs> shit that <Sabina> has <laughs> had turned out. <laughs> They're <laughs> also making those delightful podcasts. Yes.
1: So. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and we'll put those links in the show
0: notes for you, too. Yeah.
1: We're so grateful. Thank you so much for your love and support. We have uh, – there was a lot of listeners. A yeah. lot of people. A lot of people downloaded this podcast. So – I just want to say, I think, from both of us, please, please, stay nasty.
0: Hey, Feminasty listeners. If you're looking for a sound-rich, story-driven podcast that's about the ups and downs of our culture, we recommend giving an ear to Us and Them, a podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Peabody Award winner and podcast host Trey Kay explores the stories from America's cultural divides with compassion. In the most recent episode, Trey speaks with several women, Lauren Schiller of the wonderful Inflection Point podcast and Nancy Giles of CBS Sunday Morning and the Giles Files podcast, to make sense of a year that started with the Women's March, birthed the Me Too movement, and ended with the defeat of Judge Royd's Senate bid in Alabama. Trey Kay is kind of like an armchair audio therapist. He brings us empathetic stories that make us rethink our opinions on religion, sexuality, race, and more. So enjoy a new audio perspective. Download the Us and Them podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever fine podcasts are streamed and enjoyed.